0: Great. We'll make a start in a couple of minutes. There are a few copies of notes around. um, There's a few little piles towards the front on the ends of the aisles if you um, find that helpful. Um, If you don't get a copy and you want a copy, um, then please um, drop me an email. I'm Dave Lockyer at junctionchurch.org.uk and I'll, um, I'll email you a set of notes. I know some like to see a few little headings and things like that. Uh, The notes aren't great, to be honest with you, um, but uh, they may give you a little bit of uh, direction as we look at this theme together this afternoon. Yeah, do feel free to come forward. Um, You can all hear me anyway, yeah? Give me a nod if you can hear. Great. Well, it's great to, um, great to have you with us. Thank you so much for um, being here on what is a hot afternoon. What a wonderful weekend of weather we're having, aren't we, at West Point? And um, we are going to look in this afternoon seminar at the whole theme of, of revival. And uh, my intention is to um, touch on a few things, going to look on uh, the whole theme of what revival is, um, so a little bit, a, bit, a little bit of teaching, about that, um, what it isn't as well, which I think is an important thing for us to think through, um, and we're going to reflect on one or two, I'm going to have a little bit of a potted history of one or two revivals um, from our own um, u- part of the world, United Kingdom, um, to see what we can learn from that, but also more than anything really to be inspired by stories. Stories are always inspiring True stories are particularly inspiring, and I think true stories of revival are some of the most inspiring uh, things that we can read about and feed ourselves with, and my intention really in this um, afternoon seminar is to just whet your appetite to pray for revival and read about revival. There's a couple of books tucked away. You've got to be very astute to find them. There's only a couple in there on the theme of revival. And uh, I just feel this afternoon, God wants to light fuses in us, those particularly with a heart to pray and intercede for revival and even perhaps reignite and relight fuses. There may be seasons in your history as a Christian where you have felt a particular burden to pray for revival and somehow over time um, that's kind of waned somewhat and I feel God wants to reignite. Fuses and also create hunger pangs within us for revival. It's very different to um, the desire to fill yourself up and have a sugar rush just to get through to the next sugar rush. This hunger pangs are, are much more fundamental than that. When the body starts to break down and consume its own uh, protein and fiber, um, hunger pangs kick in and they are deep, deep, desperate, urgent um longings that come from within and i i just feel god wants to just begin to create some fresh hunger pangs amongst us for revival let me just ask as we begin a little straw poll uh before i kind of introduce myself and tell you a little bit about my story and then we begin to get into the nuts nuts and bolts of of revival how, m- how many of you have been in a kind of new frontier style church for over 20 years 20 you were in a new frontier style church 20 25 years ago um Okay, a- and and out of those, how many of you would say that 2025 20, years ago, the narrative of revival, and prayer for revival, and talk of revival, and expectation for revival, um, was a greater feature then than it is now, currently in 2019? How many? Of you? Yeah. Okay, it's interesting. It's always a bit of a risk when you do these things, but yeah, the I think unanimous sense is that. Somehow, revival has, to some degree, slipped off the radar somewhat, and uh, my conviction and my passion is that we begin to um, feel the need for revival and pray for revival um, in a fresh fresh way. My own story is I was saved right back in uh, 1991, sounds like a very long time ago now, in the the noughties, out of a, a background in the New Age, and as part of my background in the New Age, um, I came across the New Age teaching that there's going to be a whole new spiritual consciousness, in effect, a, a counterfeit of, of what I believe God wants to do in terms of revival. And uh, if you remember the days of David Icke in his turquoise tracksuits and things like that, going off to the other white, that, w- that was the kind of scene that I was um, into. And then a friend of mine, um, we'd had lots of deep conversations together about spirituality, um, got radically saved, became a Christian and invited me along to a New Frontiers church and for the first time I was amongst a people who actually looked like they meant what they were singing, you know, looked like um, they were engaging with God in a, in a real way and, and there was an expectation of God's presence. The message of the Bible was preached with great authority and my life was, was radically transformed Uh, Within a relatively short space of time, I experienced the power of the Holy Spirit, became a disciple of Jesus. And then someone, I'm not quite sure who, pointed me in the direction of a book. This book, Arthur Wallace, In the Day of Thy Power. How many of you read this? Um, This is a a very significant book, um, one of the, the best books, I think, written on revival. This is actually my original copy. And as a new Christian, just weeks into my Christian life, I read about this phenomenon of revival and what God had done in history. And alongside of that, someone else introduced me to the music of Keith Green. I don't know if any of you remember Keith Green. Um, Keith Green was born again um, in the midst of the 1970s Jesus Movement revival in the United States. And that was an explosive mix. And what happened in my life, I think, at that time in the grace and sovereignty and economy of God is that my expectation of what God wanted to do in our nation particularly skyrocketed, and I began to um, have an appetite to read about revival and pray for revival. It became a key part of my Christian life at that time. So that was something of my story um, a little while ago now, our story I would suggest as A family of churches, I'm talking there about the New Frontiers, broader family that commissioners of family of churches are a part of, I would suggest is also rooted in a clear conviction about an expectation for revival. That's very much, I believe, part of our roots as a movement. Now, I got saved, as I said, in the early 90s, so I wasn't around in the early days of the restoration movement in the 60s and 70s, but I've had conversations with people who were I've read and heard about those early days, and I know that Arthur Wallace, whose picture's on the notes there, was a kind of key figure at that time, almost a father uh, at that time, father figure. He wrote this book, In the Day of Thy Power, and an influential voice at the time, and he lived very clearly with a conviction um, that um, that revival was on its way. He developed a friendship uh, with Duncan Campbell, who um, was an instrument of revival in the Hebrides on the island of Lewis in 49 to uh, 50. And um, that most probably was, w- was what we might um, call the, the last true revival within the United Kingdom. Wallace writes in the introduction of his book, In the Day of Thy Power, of how as a young man he went to the Isle of Lewis in 1951 to see for himself and hear firsthand some of the accounts and stories of what God did on the island of Lewis. And one morning in a time of prayer, he describes a vision of a small fire on the horizon. that that spread across the landscape until it became a, a great prairie fire. And then the scene changed, and he saw a tiny mirage on the distant horizon. And as he looked, he saw the whole landscape begin to become flooded. And he felt that God was encouraging him that what God had done on the island of Lewis was something of a tiny microcosm of what God wanted to do on a far grander scale across the length and breadth of our nation. So I would suggest that an expectation of revival was was very much in the roots of the early days of the Restoration movement. And something of the drive to restore the church to New Testament patterns and principles was never an end in itself, but with partly revival in mind. And so the language would often have been of a new wineskin ready for the new wine of, of revival. A restored church was seen as something of a new wineskin into which new wine could be poured. And if you're familiar, as I'm sure many of you are, with Terry, Terry Virgo and his message, you'll know that reading about and praying for revival um, it is very much uh, part and parcel of who Terry is and therefore who we are in terms of our DNA as a movement and a family of churches. Uh, if you've ever had the joy of going to the New Frontiers prayer and fasting Um, opportunities that would regularly happen um, you'll know that prayer for revival was a major feature of those gatherings together and my desire is simply that this continues (laughs) that we continue to be convinced of the reality and need of revival that we continue to feel deeply the need of revival in our nation and that that translates translates through to urgent, consistent, persistent prayer for revival, individually in our churches and together as a family of churches. And I believe there's something we need to contend for here. So let's look now at what revival is and isn't. It's important to define because it's one of those words that we're all perhaps, I'm sure, very familiar with, often banded around in church. It's within the songs that we sing. It's within our language, within the world of church and the culture of church, but it can often quite uh, it can often mean different things, can't it, to different people? So I think it's important that we think what, of what we mean when we use the term revival. If we're praying for revival, I'd suggest that we need to know what it is we're praying for. And um, if we're expecting revival, it's important to know to some degree what we are expecting. So what I want you to do, just uh, going to give you a minute, turn to the person next to you. And um, define in your own terms what you think revival is in less than 20 words, say. Okay, so get your brains working. Um, If your 20-word limit is just, I haven't a clue and that's why I'm here this afternoon, that's fine. uh, But I'm sure many of you, most of you probably have got some idea of what you think of when you think of revival. So very quickly, uh, just in with the person next to you, what do you think comes to mind when you think of revival. Okay, Any, anyone brave enough to shout uh, out a few maybe key, co- key little phrases, words, when you think of the word revival? Anyone? Wake up. Great, like that. Power. Passion for Jesus. Changed lives. Conviction of sin. An extraordinary work of God, very good. Excellent. Let's let's think a little bit about what revival is. Let me give you a few quotes from different people, some of whom were involved in revival. Others were eyewitnesses of it or have, um, have studied it. Revival is often referred to as spiritual awakening, a wake up, I think one of you said. Uh, Duncan Campbell said uh, that revival is a community saturated with God. These quotes, I think, are in the notes. Um, Ian Murray says that revival is a manifestation of the presence and power of the Holy Spirit in an uncommon measure bringing refreshment to the church and salvation to the world. T.S. Rendell says revival is the king of heaven visiting his people in all his regal splendor and glory. like that. Tom Palmer says that revival is a divine disruption. It's a time when God intervenes in our affairs and interrupts our activities It's a time when God makes our comfort zone Christianity seem very uncomfortable. Revival, R.B. Jones says, is a sovereign act of God in which he pours forth his Holy Spirit upon his people in a special way, whereby Christians are quickened, backsliders are restored, churches are set on fire spiritually, sinners are remarkably converted, and society is reformed. Christmas en- Evans says this, Revival is God bending down to the dying embers of a fire just about to go out and breathing into it until it bursts into flame. Gives you a little flavor of what we mean by revival. Let me give you my own um, definition. Um, I, I would define revival as this, an extra- extraordinary season marked by intense, life-changing local manifestations of god that begins in the church and has a deep impact on the wider community let me just break that up a little bit revivals about manifestations of god manifestations a bit of an awkward word isn't it uh, we often use it to refer to our own human responses to god that's not what i mean i mean essentially a revealing of god to the human senses an unveiling of God, and that's at the heart of revival. Um, Arthur Wallace said the spirit of revival is a consciousness of God. It's manifestations of God. It's seasonal. It lasts uh, for a period of time, and and that may differ. It may be a relatively brief period. The Ulster 1859 revival, about a a year or so, it may be for extended time. The evangelical awakening that we're going to consider Uh, This afternoon, Wesley and Whitfield seemed in one form or another to be um, going around throughout the lifetime of their ministries, stirring up seasons of revival in different locations. But it's seasonal. It's intense. And I think this is what makes revival revival to some degree. It's simply something to do with the intensity of what God does in a particular place at a particular time. There's an unusual intensity during a season of revival. It's also local. There's often a local aspect to revival in that God is manifest often in a certain place. It may be a village. Some of the Welsh revivals seem to to simply um, be focused on a particular village. It may be a region. It may be a nation. Now, revival can and does break out often simultaneously in different places it can certainly be carried it seems from one place to another but it's often very localized not just in church buildings but often and sometimes in in entire regions and so in the welsh revival of 1904 they spoke to one another of the fire zone and the need the need to get in the fire zone of god's presence in the 1858 New York revival there was a zone of God's manifest presence across the eastern seaboard of the United States and there are many examples of how seas come uh, ships coming in on the sea across the Atlantic when they reached within a few miles of the shoreline sailors on the ships and passengers on the ships would just be overwhelmed with a sense of the presence of God and conviction of sin and be mass- and be converted they had to ship pastors from the mainland out to these boats before they got there to counsel and help people and bring them through in their in their christian experience a, a zone of god's presence that covered a, an entire region revival is also church based it begins within the church it's never restricted to the church community but that's where it starts and so the church in revival becomes Aware of God in a fresh, powerful way. Comes alive to God in a fresh way. Dry bones live again. And so D.M. Patner said that revival is the inrush of the spirit into a body that threatens to become a corpse. That body is the church. And revival also always has a wide impact. It's not just about the intensity of what happens, but the scale of the impact. Revival is not just a few keenies in the church being filled with the spirit, but whole congregations and often multiple congregations across multiple traditions being saturated with God. The inevitable result is large scale lasting conversions and wide scale social impact. This is not just a bit of evangelistic breakthrough or a successful social action project, great though that is. This is something that has a scale all of its own. In 1858, the revival in America, um, as a result of the revival, there were whole towns in New England where as a a result of what God did, it was almost impossible to find non-Christians. Imagine that in your town, a situation where it's almost impossible to find non-Christians. In fact, in Louisville, Kentucky, the revival had such a widespread impact that the people living there actually believed and begin to think that the millennium itself had arrived already. They thought they were already there in the new heavens and the new earth. Such was the imminence of God and the powerful transformation that had happened in their community. George TB Davis, a few months into the Welsh Revival, um, said this. And I'm going to read as a, uh, throughout this afternoon just a few little eyewitness accounts to, to whet your appetite. He says, a few months in, this is to the Welsh Revival in 1904, a few months in, already over 34,000 converts have been made. And the great awakening shows no sign of waning All observers agree that the movement is fully as remarkable as the the memorable revival of 1859. It is sweeping across hundreds of hamlets and cities, emptying saloons, theaters, and dance halls, filling the churches night after night with praying multitudes. The policemen are almost idle. In many cases, the magistrates have few trials on hand. Debts are being paid. And the character of entire communities is being transformed almost in a day. That's revival. So if that's revival, what isn't revival? I want to mention a number of things. And it's um, important, I think, to not mistake revival for other things. The purpose of this is just to distinguish what revival is so that we're clear in our thinking. It's not to set revival in opposition to anything else, uh, but to distinguish it from what we mean by other things. And to some degree, I trust that we are enjoying many, if not all, of the things that I'm going to mention. And who knows where those things themselves may lead, hopefully, to (laughs) revival itself. But I think it's important to distinguish them from what we mean when we use the word revival. If we're gonna contend for revival, we need to know what we're contending for. And if we're gonna pray for revival, we need to know what we're praying for. If we don't, the danger is that revival becomes mistaken for something else, and in the process, we eclipse revival with other things, and we settle for less than what God wants. And what we actually need. So, revival isn't then restoration. Restoration, I would uh, define as the return to New Testament patterns and principles of church life, and in the process, the abandoning of patterns that are not rooted in the New Testament. It's not that. Good that that is, and necessary that though that is. It's not renewal, which is individuals or groups experiencing through the activity of the Spirit a fresh sense of personal engagement with God. It's a good thing. A successful, it's not a successful evangelistic campaign, the joy of seeing some conversion growth as a result of some form of outreach or strategy, good and necessary though that is. Neither is it the rediscovery of the supernatural or spirit filled life. By that I mean the enjoyment of a greater measure of An activity of fruitfulness in terms of the spiritual gifts, often outside the context of the church as part of our mission to the unreached communities around us. Healing, words of knowledge, prophecy, miracles, things like treasure hunting. Those are good things, and it's great to hear of more of those things happening now than there perhaps were 10, 15, 20 years ago. But that's not revival. Neither is revival the reshaping of church life as a missional community. By that I mean the process by which we get to grips with the whole issue of contextualizing the gospel. Reshaping the culture and structure of church life so that we're far more accessible to the unreached community around us. That may be shorter meetings, it may be more accessible language, it may be decent coffee. Thank God for decent coffee contextualizing is essential, it's important, it's helpful in terms of engaging with the unreached world around us and experiencing increased fruitfulness. And I think we are seeing something of increased fruitfulness as a result of getting our heads around some of these processes of contextualizing. One of my great heroes is Hudson Taylor, the um, founder of the Ch- China Inland Mission And he pioneered what's meant by contextualizing. He he made a decision to do something radical. He moved out of the mission compound, which is where all the Western missionaries lived, um, in the classic kind of model of mission work. Um, He moved to a, a, a part of the city where there were no foreigners in the city he was in, in China. He cut his hair in the style of the local Chinese, and he donned the local dress of a chinese teacher and instantly he found that there was a an engagement with his message that was not there before that's contextualizing and we need to go through that process and do that together individually and and together as churches but it's not what we mean by revival so that's what revival is and isn't i want to talk now about the need of revival In 1959 at Westminster Chapel, I don't know if any of you here from Westminster Chapel um, up in London, um, the doctor himself, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, did something unprecedented. He interrupted his Sunday morning exposition on the book of Ephesians, and he did it to mark the 100th year since the 1859 revival that began in Ulster and spread to other parts of the UK and the world um, had begun. And he began a series on revival on Sunday mornings, not evenings, at the chapel. That was quite a radical thing, if you know the doctor and his approach to preaching to do. That actually is available in his book, Revival, which you can get the transcript of that. It's also available um, through free download from the mljtrust.org website. I'd encourage you to feed yourself on those sermons on revival. And he began that whole series by picking up um, the incident in the Gospels of the young man who was healed and delivered by Jesus but had not been able to be delivered by the disciples. And um, the incident where Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, look, this this kind only come out by prayer and fasting. That was the title of his first sermon on revival. And the doctor speaking importantly in the Britain of the late 1950s, took that story and spoke of the urgent need in the hour in which he lived for revival in the United Kingdom. This kind. This kind. Such is the urgency of the hour that what we need is a revival. He preached a glorious series on revival to stir up a sense of urgency and need for revival. Well, I would suggest if there was an urgent need of revival in the Britain of 1959, and many of us might look back to that time as a kind of, you know, wow, (laughs) what it must have been like to live then when Christian values were widely accepted. How much more, fast forward 60 years, is there an even greater urgent need for revival in our day? If you as some do, train to row across the Atlantic. You get yourself fit and ready, and you get a vessel that's as streamlined and slick and prepared to make that journey. And if the ocean currents and the prevailing wind within which you're rowing that boat are with you, then you can make some quite considerable headway But once you get into a situation where the ocean currents and the prevailing winds are against you, you can be as fit and healthy as a human can possibly be. And you can have the slickest boat on the ocean, but you will make little headway in the bigger context in terms of where you're wanting to head. You can put out some serious wattage, you can have the slickest boat on the sea, but you will still make very little progress and headway. And I would suggest that even though the church is, thankfully, in so many ways, spiritually healthy and perhaps better fitted for mission (laughs) within the world and context that we live in than she has been for some time. And although there is all sorts of worthwhile wattage going into the activities that we're giving ourselves to in terms of our mission, the reality is that the bigger picture of the ocean currents and the prevailing winds in the world out there and the culture out there are so strong that unless we experience revival, we will ultimately make little headway. That's not to say that any headway is significant because one life is enough that the angels in heaven rejoice over. But if we're going to make extraordinary waves in our culture, we need something more than what we're currently (coughs) experiencing. I would suggest that for all the wonderful stories that we celebrate of growth and fruitfulness, We are still making little headway. And if we're going to have a significant impact on our nation and fruitfulness, we will need more than just successful Alpha courses. We will need more than just busy food banks and accessible Sunday mornings. We will need revival and nothing less. One of the best biblical metaphors of revival in the Bible, I think, is in Amos 9 where in verse 13, the prophet says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper, and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed, and the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. It's a wonderful picture of how the normal cycles of agricultural life, the processes of sowing and reaping, and the time frames and the time scales that that, that those living in that agrarian culture would have been so familiar with, the the waiting that needs to happen, the confidence that the seed sown will eventually produce the harvest, the time between uh, plowing and reaping. Suddenly, the prophet's saying there will be a moment, a time, when a divine acceleration of those processes will mean that the ploughman will be overtaking the reaper. What a wonderful picture of what revival is. The normal processes and time frames that we can grow so familiar with in church life, suddenly, divinely, extraordinarily accelerated through God's supernatural intervention. To the degree at which what usually takes long seasons to accomplish happens overnight as a result of God's divine intervention. In fact, if you're familiar with the accounts of revival, you'll know that what can be achieved in several generations can happen in a single year or even a single day. God is able to do that. So we need revival. You still with me? What's revival rooted in? Let me uh, get through this relatively quickly because I want to give a couple of accounts of revival and I do want us to pray for revival. There's plenty of examples in history of revival, isn't there? There's plenty of prophetic promises that perhaps we can bring to mind of revival, but I believe that our theology of revival needs ultimately to be rooted in something deeper than either history or prophecy. We can read about what God's done in church history, and it can fill us with hope and confidence that he may do it again. We can hear of prophetic words that have been spoken and pray with confidence and expectation. But we need to root our praying and our convictions in something, I think, deeper than that, the nature of who God is himself. And we know through Scripture that we can trust in God To intervene because of who he is, God is everywhere present, but not everywhere revealed. He's the eternal spirit, he's equally present everywhere, he's omnipresent, but he's not everywhere revealed. So, God is as present here in the West Point showground in terms of his omnipresence as he is down the road in Tesco's right now. But he's revealed here in a way, perhaps, that he's not in Tesco's down the road. And he's acting here in a way that he's not acting in Tesco's down the road. And so we find that scripture reveals a God who, in certain places and at certain times, makes himself known to our senses. At times, that might be accompanied by visible, audible phenomenon. We've heard about the fire of God. And uh, there are accounts of revival where some of these visible, audible phenomena uh, phenomenon marked God's revealing of Himself in a particular place at a t- particular time. In Azusa Street, in the Los Angeles revival of 1906 to 1908, eyewitnesses reported seeing a, a holy glow emanating from the building um, that the revival was focused in. Others reported hearing sounds from the ri- from the wooden building, like explosions, that reverberated around the neighborhood. And such phenomenon at times caused onlookers to the fire department on several occasions similar thing we can read happening in timor indonesia in 1965 where um, an officer at the local police station having seen flames on the church building sounded the fire alarm and uh, people from the community responded and they saw the flames but the building was not consumed well whether or not there are any of these extraordinary physical phenomenon in revival God in revival is so manifestly revealed in a locational region that there is always a profound instant recognition and awareness of his presence and an instantaneous response to his revealed presence and glory. And it's because of that that we can pray confidently for revival because that's who God is. God's responsive to prayer also. Prayer works. And so if we believe that prayer works, we can believe that he responds to our praying. We believe also that God is powerful and mighty, don't we? Not just omnipresent, but omnipotent, all-powerful. Because we believe in that, we can believe God for revival that changes a nation. We also believe that God is by nature redemptive and restorative. That's the whole big story of the Bible. We mess things up. And he doesn't delete humanity. He doesn't annihilate us. He doesn't scrap planet Earth. He begins to redeem and restore and intervene and act. And all the way through the Bible, we find that story. All the way through the Old Testament history, we find it a cycle of backsliding, recognition of sin, calling on God, and then divine intervention and recovery. Because he's by nature a God of redemption and restoration, We believe in. We can pray for revival with confidence. And then, of course, he's committed to his own glory. Essential to who God is is his holy commitment to his own glory. And the features and effects of revival are so extraordinary that they can only ever be attributed to God. You can't mistake revival for something human. It can't be attributed to anything else other than the sovereign intervention of God, and therefore he alone receives the glory. You can't mistake it for the result of our methods or our hard work. It has the stamp of God all over it. It expresses then God's commitment to his own glory. He wants the attention. And because of that, we can believe in and pray for revival, that God would do something in our nation of such a scale and intensity that it can only be attributed to him. And he alone will get the credit for it. So we need revival, don't we? We have a God who has revealed himself to be by nature a God of intervention manifestation, a God who intervenes, who restores, who revives, a God of power, a God committed to his own glory. Let's look at some examples and accounts of revival. Um, I just want to skip over and just um, very quickly mention a couple that we have already within the history of the Bible. Revival is not something that happens um, kind of just in post biblical history. It's something that we can read of in the Bible itself. And one great Old Testament example is found in 2 Chronicles 5 and 7. It's the dedication of the temple. You may be familiar, I hope, with that story. David has spent many years um, getting things ready. He's handed over this uh, great passion and vision to his son Solomon, who inherits the kingdom. Uh, Solomon spends, I think, about four years in his early years as king, continuing to gather to quarry stone, gather cedar building a temple for God. And then we read in 2 Chronicles 5 and 2 Chronicles 7, the moment of dedication. And extraordinary things happen. There's great quantities of sacrifices made. There's there's incredible worship. Singers, instruments, 120 trumpeters. And after all the long season of preparation, in that moment of dedication... We read that God comes into the temple. God fills the temple. We find in that story, in 2 Chronicles 7, verse 1 and 2, um, this is what the Old Testament says, the glory of the Lord filled the temple and the priests could not enter the house of the Lord Because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. We read a fire falling from heaven. There's no better description, I don't think, of revival than that. Fire falling from heaven. The glory of the Lord filling the Lord's house. Intense manifestations of God in the temple. Just consider that for a moment. The glory of God was so tangible in that moment that the priests, the writer says, could not... Enter, could not enter. Now, the priests, of course, were the ones set aside for the business of the temple. They were the ones so familiar with what happened within the temple. They were the sanctified ones. They were the ones with special access. They wore the special robes. They'd been anointed with a special oil. They were qualified, as qualified as anyone, to enter and act and, uh, and conduct the business of the temple. And yet when God came, they could not enter. It doesn't say they didn't want to enter. It doesn't say they didn't feel like entering or they dare not enter. It says they could not enter. The atmosphere was so charged with the manifest glory of God that it was physically incapable of, 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 of getting in. That's revival. It's almost the opposite of a seeker-friendly environment, isn't it? Even the priests are incapable of getting in. The atmosphere was so charged with the manifest presence of God. I don't know what that was like. I don't know if you've ever been on one of those crazy fairground rides where you you get pinned to the seat because of the the G-forces. I imagine it might have been something like that. There was such a powerful, real, tangible sense of God that you physically could not enter in to that space. You read of a story um, in uh, Exodus 40 with Moses. It was so familiar with God. Again, a very similar situation where Moses was himself not able to even get into the tent. Oh, for days when God's power is so present (laughs) that that we're physically (laughs) overwhelmed in that way. This is a saturated community. That's a great Old Testament story. Pentecost, of course, is our precedent, isn't it? Church history begins with revival. And Pentecost has all the hallmarks of revival. Unusual phenomenon. A suddenness to it. A sovereign act of God. Revelations of God's glory. They were telling the mighty works of God. Powerful gospel preaching. Deep conviction. Genuine repentance. Repentance. And, of course, phenomenal growth. That's where it ends. Large-scale impact in the community around them. All the hallmarks of genuine revival on the day of Pentecost. And that's our precedent. That's what God gives us in Scripture for New Testament church life. Let's consider one or two revivals then, and then we're going to pray. I hope you feel God stirring you (laughs) with a desire for this. I want to talk about the great evangelical awakening, which was in the mid-18th century in England and America, and of course that was associated with two key figures, George Whitfield, John Wesley. Um, This revival, unlike many of the other examples of revival, was a very prolonged season of revival, followed by... Uh, social reform, a whole movement within the life of the church that actually took the church to the ends of the earth. Historians would claim that this revival brought lasting, tangible social transformation to our nation. Secular historians would look at this event and claim that that was the result of it. And so historians can speak in terms like this, England before and after Wesley. Some would claim that the Great Evangelical Awakening uh, was the event that prevented England slipping into what was happening in many other European nations in terms of secular revolution. So let's consider the Great Evangelical Awakening. Let me give you a little bit of a potted history of it. England at the time was in a state of social moral collapse. And as I begin to describe the state of England, you may find little bells going off of recognition and familiarity. Because in many ways, our own condition as a culture reflects many of the conditions that we find at this period in our history when God broke out and the tide turned and the prevailing wind changed and the ocean currents began to head in a very different direction. During the early part of the 18th century, a small band of sincere young men ended up at Oxford University, where they gathered a small group to encourage one another to pursue personal holiness. It's called the Holy Club, and among them were the brothers John and Charles Wesley. uh, Charles, the great hymn writer, um, John, the great uh, leader of the Methodist movement, and George Whitfield, as a young man, was there also, training to be an Anglican minister. Now, these were young men with a sincere desire for God, but no real understanding at that point in time of the grace of God and of Of what they came to call the new birth, being born again. They tried to live out the Christian life very sincerely by rules and accountability. And if you've ever been in that kind of culture, you will know that's not a good recipe ultimately for genuine holiness and fruitfulness. And yet they still went for it. In 1835, after making himself very ill through excessive fasting, the young man, Whitfield, discovered the new birth message, the message of God's grace, and was changed. When Wesley himself ended up, strangely, as a missionary, not yet born again, uh, traveled to America for two years, he, uh, he, he, he labored as a missionary, he preached strongly against sin, but he had no personal experience of victory assurance himself. And he ended up, as you will, in that kind of condition, exhausted, disillusioned and disappointed he said these words i went to america to convert the indians but oh wretched man that i am who will convert me lots of religious fervor but no real experience of freedom or forgiveness but during that trip wesley the wesley brothers had come across a bunch of christian missionaries called the moravians and they were full of joy assurance. They were making the same sacrifice, but they were somehow full of joy and assurance. And the Wesleys began a friendship with the Moravian who began to introduce them to the message of God's grace and of salvation by grace. The salvation was not the result of hard, sincere religious effort, but grace through faith. And the penny dropped for Charles Wesley first. He experienced an assurance of salvation. Four days later, In a Moravian meeting, as the preface of Luther's commentary on Romans was being read aloud, um, Hannah referred to this the other evening, John Wesley himself believed and felt in his own words his heart strangely warmed. On New Year's Day in in 1739, the Wesley brothers and George Whitfield and about 60 others who were beginning to experience this new birth gathered in Fetter Lane, London, to sing and pray. And this is um, how Wesley describes uh, what they did. Monday, 1st of January, 1739, had a love feast with our brethren and spent the whole night in close prayer, psalms and thanksgiving. God supported me without sleep. Then about three in the morning, the Holy Spirit fell on this relatively small gathering. And Wesley himself picks up the account in these ways. He says, The power of God came mightily upon us, insomuch that many fell to the ground. As soon as we were recovered a little from awe and amazement at the presence of his majesty, we broke out with one voice. We praise thee, O God. We acknowledge thee to be the Lord. A small gathering has a deep, powerful encounter with God. Later that week, they gathered in another meeting with other like-minded leaders, and they began to feel a powerful sense that God was going to do something in the nation. Now, these are Anglican ministers, of course, and so within the Anglican church, they begin to preach with conviction the need to be born again, and they begin to find a fresh power and fruitfulness and conviction. Whitfield, within a month and a half, bearing in mind he is 22 years old at this stage, was preaching to thousands, and within three months, Wesley was doing the same. And then in February, Whitfield was due to preach in an Anglican church in Bermondsey, if anyone here from Bermondsey or London, that part of London. But the crowd was so great that they could not fit into the church building, and so they gathered outside in the churchyard, and Whitfield did something that may be quite mundane to us but was radical uh, for him and courageous for him he went outside and preached to those that were outside the church building an open air sermon to a congregation of 200 and there was a powerful effect as people came under the conviction of sin and heard this message of new birth and that began for whitfield the practice of preaching the gospel in the open air mostly in bristol and London, and crowds of up to twenty thousand began to gather to listen to him. Now Wesley was a bit sceptical at first to adopt this practice. Eventually, actually, he was convinced from the Scripture, the story of the Sermon on the Mount, that this was biblical and that Jesus had modelled it. But he joined Whitfield on one of those occasions and became became personally convic- convinced that this was uh, biblical and it was right. And for another 30 years, Whitfield and Wesley preached in this way in England and America. Wesley traveled and preached for another 50 years until he died at the age of 88. His brother Charles preached, but is, often, is also, of course, best known for writing more than 6,000 hymns, many of which we sing in our churches today. Between them, they saw thousands of thousands of people becoming Christians, and in their wake, a movement of social reform and global mission enterprise. It began with 60 people, like-minded people, gathered in a small, obscure little building in Fetter Lane, London. Let me mention a few features of this revival. Great darkness was the first thing that I observed. England, it seems, in the first half of the 18th century, was a pretty dark, brutal place to live. It wasn't a comfortable place to be a born-again Christian, put it like that. 1738, Bishop Barclay declared that religion and morality in Britain had collapsed, in his words, to a degree that has never been known before in any Christian country. That was true in terms of how people thought. Philosophically, there was a darkness. The influence of the Puritans had waned with their emphasis on the primacy of God's revealed truth. Europe had embraced as uh, a result of the Enlightenment deism, which was a worldview that rejected that God had acted and intervened and spoken, and that humanity was now at the center of human destiny. That thinking had undermined a confidence in the revelation of scripture, and it had effectively relegated God to the sidelines of human history, whilst men and women and humanity with their reason took center stage. They accepted that God had played some part in creating the world, but in that uh, very well-known metaphor, they saw him as a watchmaker who had simply wound the watch up, was no longer involved or engaged, and could no longer be expected to intervene and change things. Deism. It was a rejection of revelation and authority, and the result was that, by and large, the church itself had become an echo rather than a voice. So William Blackstone visited the church of every major clergyman in London. And his conclusion was this, that he did not hear a single discourse which had more Christianity in it than the writings of Cicero. The church had just become a a faint echo of what culture had come to believe and become convinced of. (coughs) Sound familiar? The church had become an irrelevant religious institution led by people who had no relationship with God and nothing distinctive to say to their culture. Church leaders themselves were notoriously corrupt and often drunk, and the nation was spiritually indifferent to the gospel. Socially, there was great darkness. The church, having lost its confidence, failed, of course, then to lead people into a life-changing relationship with Jesus, and so wider society had spiraled into a terrible state. There was a gap between the rich and the poor, huge gap. Many millions living in our own nation in squalor, but at the same time, rich elites enjoying incredible luxury. The lucrative slave trade had brought in great wealth for the relatively few. The industrial revolution had resulted in masses of low-paid, badly treated workers who were treated no better than animals, but also very wealthy factory owners. And with a surge in wealth for the relatively few, there was, as a result, deep inequality and a whole raft of financial scandals and stock market crashes like the South Sea bubble. Sound familiar? There was a breakdown of law and order. England was a lawless place. Few towns had any sort of police force. Mobs and gangs ran areas of inner cities. In London, people rarely traveled after dark except under armed guard. Robbers and highwaymen ruled the roads. Horace Walpole said in 1751 that one is forced to travel even at noon as if one were going into battle. Can you imagine the state of England? Around the coast of England, criminals would deliberately lure merchant ships onto the rocks to steal the cargo while sailors drowned in the open seas. And alongside of all that, there was a brutal penal system that didn't seem to be resolving the issue of crime and the breakdown of social order. Prisons were crowded. They were filthy, with open sewers running through them. There were 160 criminal acts that were punishable by death. It included, apparently, cutting down a cherry tree. I don't know what's so important about cherry trees, but you could get hanged for cutting down a cherry tree or stealing 40 shillings or more from someone's home, or five shillings from a shop. And public hangings were a regular occurrence and were a grim form of entertainment for many. This is the Britain into which God poured out his spirit. There was an absence of education. Education was only available for the rich elites. There was no provision for the poor, apart from the church system of charity schools, uh, which were often full of half-literate teachers. There was... The abuse of the most vulnerable in society. Children, infants, suffered more than any other at that time. In London, between 1730 and 1750, three out of four children born to all classes died before their fifth birthday. I think in your notes, if you've got them, you've got a um, a, a picture of of Hogarth's depiction of Gin Lane the name of the painting that was painted. And within that horrific painting, he depicts a drunken woman with syphilis all over her legs, inadvertently, accidentally on purpose, dropping her half-naked infant to its death. That was a common thing. There were campaigners at the time who were exposing the practice of exposing newborn babies to perish in the streets or deliberately handing them over in cowardice to heartless nurses who would then starve those infants. 97% of the infant poor in the workhouses at the time died as children, the most vulnerable. Drunkenness was also rife. In the 18th, ce- 18th century, is known as the Gin Age. We have a revival of gin at the moment, don't we? This toxic liquor at the time became a massive source of all sorts of social evils, poverty, violence, prostitution and murder. Every third house in London sold liquor. And gin shops were everywhere. And they would advertise in this way, get drunk for a penny and dead drunk for two pence and straw to lie on till the drunken stupor is gone. So for a few pence you could... Get yourself into such a drunken stupor that you just needed to collapse on the straw which was provided for you. Violent and immoral entertainment was a feature of the society of the time. Cockfighting, bullfights, bear baiting, bulldog fights, along with bare knuckle boxing, all popular forms of entertainment. Live entertainment in the theatre was obscene. A judge was quoted as saying that no sooner is a theatre or playhouse opened in any part of this kingdom than it at once becomes surrounded by a halo of brothels. You can imagine what those kind of uh, scenes uh, within the playhouse stirred up in people. It was obscene, obscene literature. Public sex acts had become forms of entertainment, and gambling was rife. The rich and poor alike, it was a national obsession. One histro- historian described England in this way at the time. One vast casino. So that's the context <laughs> within which the great evangelical awakening happened. God moved in power. There was great grace. And we need to be confident that where sin abounds and when sin abounds, grace will abound all the more. The message of salvation of grace was at the heart of the awakening. By and large, that message, as we said, had been lost to the church. It had become a formal religious institution, but it was rediscovered by Charles and John Wesley and Whitfield himself, and it had a powerful impact on them, their holy club days were very sincere and driven, but they weren't at the root of the great evangelical awakening. Their experience of the grace of God was at the heart of the message that Wesley and Whitfield and others uh, shared was salvation by grace and the new birth. And Whitfield uh, particularly preached this wherever he went. He's said to have preached over a thousand times on the text. You must be born again. 34 years into his ministry, he said this, I'm now 55 years of age and I tell you, I am more convinced that the truth of the new birth is a revelation from God himself and that without it you can never be saved by Jesus Christ. This great discovery of the message of grace was foundational to them. Great grace we find breaking out. Great love for the lost was also part and parcel of this, um, of this revival. They preached this message to those in the church, because despite being Christian in name only, they were not largely born again. But most of their ministry was focused not within the church, but on the great crowds outside the church. In between speaking to those crowds, they all spent significant time sharing Christ with unbelievers, counseling small groups and individuals. Whitfield got the nickname The Awakener or The Firebringer. He focused many of his efforts in England, in Bristol and London. Anyone from Bristol here This afternoon? No, we're going to pray for fire in Bristol. And it wasn't the nice parts of Bristol or London, but some of the most deprived areas. In Bristol, many of the churches closed their doors to Whitfield. And so he went beyond the church to notorious areas of the city, places like Kingswood, where around which was around a 4,000-acre district where the coal miners lived. Effectively, it was just a slum area of the city. Miners who lived there were considered utter savages. His first message there was to 200 stunned miners as they made their way out of the coal pits. When he returned, he spoke to 5,000 who had gathered. And as he shared the message of God's grace through faith, these hardened, working-class miners began to weep with conviction. And as the famous uh, description goes, uh, he, ri- he, he writes, of, of, speaks of how white gutters made by tears plentifully fell down their black cheeks as they came out of the coal pits. For a six-week period, there was revival amongst those regions of the city and amongst those mining communities. He preached also among the factory yards to some of the hardest members of society in London. He preached at Moorfields, a notorious pleis- pleasure park, Kennington Common, which was one place that was used for public hangings. He p- went to Hackney Marsh Racecourse and preached to about ten thousand who were there for the for the races. And a few days later at Marleybone Fields, it was thirty thousand. In between that, of course, many many missions trips to America. Mass open air evangelism. Apparently in a one year season, in one year, um, in a two month period, he preached to a total of about 240,000 people. Bear in mind, the total population of England, of Britain, sorry, at the time was five and a half million. Wesley's ministry also followed very much the same lines. So this was very much... Evangelism amongst the lost and the unreached. Great grace, great love for the lost, powerful anointed preaching. Both Wesley and Whitfield preach with such power and anointing that there was a, 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 an instant effect, very different styles of preaching. Severe persecution also not to skip over that was an element of that situation and of that revival from within the church from the wider community these men came very close to death on numerous occasions the revival was caricature they were caricatured they were vilified physically attacked on numerous occasions rotten eggs dead animals were regularly hurled at them on these occasions scuffles would break out rocks would be hurled Their lives were literally on the line. But there was, along with that, a prolonged, lasting impact. There were certainly high high points, low points. Wesley continued for his whole life. Whitfield died relatively young at the age of 56. But they had a massive impact. Wesley himself trained and released 15,000 itinerant preachers, organized converts into Christ-centered communities that became what we know of as the Methodist movement. So the great evangelical awakening into a context of great darkness and resistance to the gospel, philosophical darkness, social darkness, inequality, God comes (laughs) in a moment of grace and the prevailing wind begins to change. Things happen. I think it's harder to identify a revival movement that has has left such lasting fruit the result, deep social change that went way beyond their own lifetimes. And that in many ways, I think we live also, don't we, in the good of. Wales in 1904 was very different. And um, I'm, we're going to pray together in a few moments. But I just want to mention um, the Welsh revival of 1904. Anyone here from Wales? Fantastic. It was 1904 to 1905, primarily focused on the regions of South Wales, and very much centered on the ministry of a young man called Evan Roberts. This was very much a young person's revival. In a place called New Quay in the south of Wales, a young woman called Florrie Evans, who was um, a churchgoer, her parents were Christians, she wasn't, came to know Christ and gave her testimony in a little youth meeting, and God began to move. Evan Roberts himself, a young man in his early 20s powerfully affected, given a vision of a 100,000 people being saved, and over a period of about a year or two, that was the result. Let me encourage you to read the account of the Welsh revival. You know, Guy began our conference by referring to that wonderful verse in Habakkuk, where the prophet turns to God and says, Lord, I've heard of your fame. Heard the report. Now, in our day, revive and renew your work. I wonder if we can pray together. You want to share something? Yeah, come forward, Angela, and share.
1: Very briefly, for um, so the last week or so, just been praying gr- about revival, about God's sovereign power, and I had a picture that's been developing like almost a photograph in a laboratory. You have to wait and it develops. And that's how I sometimes uh, identify it. And as David's been talking and we've been reading amazing notes, one thing I felt God say, write it down. Uh, Have you made a book? Is this a book? Yeah, uh, it is a book. So... I'd like you to have signed my copy. Can I be the book signing <laughs> okay. first in the queue? So that was the first one. The picture I had was, um, again, in a laboratory. You know, God, God is always proving science is right. It's not the other way around. Science isn't proving God's right. God is proving science is right because he did it first. And I had didn't know the name of it, and I'm not academic. I just heard culture disc- dish. Is that, is that what they have in laboratories? Yeah. yeah, so it's a culture dish. And I'm thinking of culture very much. We're l- looking at culture all the time. Uh, in Bridport, we're very much a culture of vulnerable needy. The culture discs had sows that were growing and touching each other, but they were separate. And it was a diagram on a... You know, like you used to get on your exam paper to answer questions, and this was a culture disc with sows that had been drawn in, in the printed ink. And as I was looking at it, each sow inside the culture that was growing under the microscope, it was God's looking down. We were looking through his microscope from his viewpoint. Each little sow had the words Baptist, Anglican, Methodists, all those words you were saying, all those denominations, all the things that we have in our own little hub. <laughs> um, and they were all separate. And God said just now, He wants to smudge the edges. Because when I was out in the grass the other just now, it changed from being ink to being charcoal. Because You know it can be rubbed off like a blackboard takes the chalk off. Well, this was white with charcoal. And God began to rub the inside edge. The outside still was separate, but God is doing an inside work, smudging the edges. What was also growing were little dots that, that are disease. But it was not just disease, it was inequality, social injustice, all the poisons of our world. So I think what it's saying is God is doing a revival first in the church, and that is scripture. My first words when you were saying, what is revival? And I got it muddled up, and I wrote, revival needs revival. (laughs) We, We need to have God's revival it's 25 years ago since toronto had its blessing that corresponds with our 35th wedding anniversary and jeff took me to niagara falls but we went to the toronto catch a our church that was one of the things god said he would send us to when we went to bethel it was because he was going to make um, do new things on the first of january 2011 that sparked me we went to catch a fire on the 25th anniversary. And God zapped me. I was standing beside Jeff, and I felt a spark once, and I thought, static electricity. So I moved away from Jeff, thinking, he's giving me static electricity. We're worshiping. Then all of a sudden, this zap, another electric shock, and I'm thinking, "Ouch, that was really hurt." I moved further away, thinking I'm not standing near that man." I was powerfully hit that it nearly knocked me off my feet. So very painful. So I screamed out, I believe God has ignited a fire. It's a new fire. We're gonna catch that fire, we're gonna spread that fire. And I think we ought to pray for David, very much an Amber, because with this book it's gonna light a fire in your community, but wherever it goes. And yeah, there's gonna be fire in Bristol i reckon there's going to be fire and god is wanting the denomination smudged yeah.
0: right, thank you angela <laughs> yeah <laughs> we, we're gonna we are sh- gonna pray in, f- in, in in yeah in a few minutes and um i, I just want to um just kind of bring the, the kind of teaching bit i've skipped right over the Welsh revival really i just want to whet your appetite get hold of these accounts they're there. There are accounts from eyewitnesses of what God has done, um, you know, during these times. Um, Do you want to share what you felt while I? Yeah. Start
2: of this session, I've I've seen this picture of um, people tending a fire that had gone out. I didn't know Dave would kind of give that picture in his word and. I think it's very interesting as I look around that there's not actually that many young people here. And I was reminded of Anna in the temple. What a significant role she played, praying faithfully for something that she didn't actually see till the very end of her life. She gave herself, I am going to pray and fast. And even if I don't see it, you know, but she just had that passion in her and I felt God say to some of you guys, you've come here because it's like revival there's a seminar on revival and it's just stirred like a memory of something you used to give yourself to you used to have prayer meetings in your home some of you and you would pray for revival and this lady in the orange t-shirt god highlighted you to me and said anna in the temple and he said come on this is an invitation today this is an invitation i want you to pick up that poker because that fire Even though it might have died down a bit and, you know, life is busy and God's doing lots of other stuff too. But that fire needs tending. And you're a fire tender, Angela. And others here, you are fire tenders. And you used to pray about this. What changed? What happened? God's commission to you today is reminding you, come on, you're my annas in the temple. This is men and women. Get your poker out and stoke that fire. Start praying. Invite people over. Have dinner and then pray for a revival.
0: Amen. Yeah. Once the fuse is lit, the fuse is lit. <laughs> you know, something, it's not the main event, but the fuse is lit. And I do feel, as I shared earlier, God wants to relight fuses um, and to take what God is doing, not just here, but over this whole weekend to... Um, translate that through to fresh, urgent prayer for revival. So um, before we pray, let me conclude. Revival is our revival. uh, God is a God of revival. The kingdom doesn't move forward as we read through history, and even scripture actually with a steady incline. It it moves forward through sudden, surprising, sometimes um, outbursts of God on the scene when what normally takes whole generations to happen Happens within a very condensed time frame. We need that revival. Is in God. It God is a God of revival. Revival is our most urgent need. I would submit to you. There's plenty of good things happening in the church in the UK today. Plenty of things we can celebrate and thank God for. The church is far from being dead and or irrelevant. Actually, the Holy Spirit is on the move. New Testament values more widespread than we've ever known. There's more healings people being saved, Alpha, churches engaged in social action. And yet, despite that, I would submit that the strong prevailing winds and currents (laughs) in the wider world out there have not changed. And we need revival. Alpha courses have a part to play, but they're not going to stem that tide. We need an intervention from God. Prayer for revival should be, for all of us, persistent and urgent. We've visited a couple of uh, revivals this afternoon. Um, It's not possible, and I've read about many revivals, to find a revival where there is not a story of prayer woven into that event and that experience. It's just not there. It may be just one or two praying persistently for a period of time, but prayer is a standout feature of revival prayer revival therefore should be persistent and urgent we should also pray for revival but at the same time faithfully invest our lives in the ongoing work of building the kingdom extending the kingdom and building the church and so whilst on the one hand we recognize the urgent need for revival that shouldn't lead lead us to devaluing the very significant um, but often mundane ways let's face it in which we get on with investing our lives in building the church and extending the kingdom Don't despise the day of small beginnings. (laughs) But don't stop reaching out for greater things at one and the same time. We don't abandon the ongoing commitments we have and the ongoing ways in which we are serving in order to disappear somewhere into a prayer closet until revival uh, comes. There's value in a single seed being sown, isn't there? But we long for a great harvest that only God can give. We also should be prepared and flexible. Revival will certainly bring with it massive disruptions. We have no idea <laughs> what what revival will bring by way of disruption and very big changes, but it won't rewrite everything. And if our foundational values, as I believe they are, are rooted in what God has revealed in Scripture, they don't ever change. We still believe in the things we believe in, the practice of preaching and teaching the Bible, the importance of community, relationship, the ways that we express that. We still believe in leadership. We still believe in corporate worship, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the importance of every part of the body playing its part. Those things don't change. The wineskin may need to flex a little to accommodate new wine, but it's not jettisoned. So it's important that we continue to build good, strong, (laughs) biblical foundations while recognizing that when and if revival comes, there will be some inevitable adaptation and disruption. And we should also continue to take care of the things that matter. One of the lessons of revival history is sadly that those who enjoyed and participated in these seasons of extraordinary grace and power somehow, sometimes, in the process, failed personally to take care of some stuff that really does matter. It's easy to judge in hindsight, but there was even in some of the individuals that we've cited and uh, and uh, uh, you know described fallout in their lives. <laughs> Paul says in 1 Timothy 4:16, "Keep a close watch on yourself and your teaching." Times of revival require that we continue to take care of ourselves. Revival can sound very exciting, but I had imagined that it's extremely intense. I mean, I can't imagine what it's like to be in the midst of revival imagine that the temptation would be to be at every meeting when revival comes and i tell you there are a lot of meetings when revival breaks out it's almost endless meetings every waking moment becomes an opportunity to gather and meet meetings go on for hours and hours late nights early mornings and so i think there is within that context often a context to become physically and emotionally burned out we all need to go to steve petch's Seminar on emotional health and ensure that we apply it in a revival season. We can neglect to take care of ourselves and the elements of our humanity that we can forget in a context of revival. Evan Roberts himself had a series of breakdowns, nervous breakdowns, ended up as a spiritual recluse, effectively. John Wesley's marriage seems to have been in a very poor state. To the extent at which his wife, Molly, eventually left him and didn't return. We need to watch ourselves and not in the process of all the intense excitement and encounter fail to take care of the things that matter. Watch yourself and your teaching. Doctrine within the intense experience of revival, you can find that extreme forms of teaching began and begin to emerge. The experience of the kingdom of heaven on earth can give and has given at times rise to extreme End times teaching or teaching that overemphasizes the now of the kingdom as to the not yet aspect of the kingdom. Prophecy can become considered as carrying an authority beyond that which scripture gives it. Strange emphases can develop. And so as we look forward to revival and pray for it, we must remember that we, even in the context, and probably especially within the context of revival, continue to take care Of things that matter. I wonder if we can pray. Let's stand. And I'd like us just to get in small groups. um, And we're going to pray. We've got five, seven minutes left. Um, I want you to pray. Take the prayer of Habakkuk. Lord, I've heard of your fame. I've heard a report. I've heard just little snippets, even this afternoon, of what you've done. And I long, that in my day, I don't want to live this life without having tasted something of that. Let's let's lift our voices together. Pray that another wonderful prayer is uh, that we can pray is in is in Isaiah, uh, where the prophet says, "Lord, tear open the heavens and come down." What a wonderful description of revival! Tear open the heavens and come down. These are biblical prayers that we can pray as we call on the God of revival to break out. So let's just begin just to lift our voices right where we are and, and and pray together for God to break out. Let's do that for a few minutes. Just lift your hands to the Lord. I'm going to pray for fuses to be lit. (laughs) Father, we pray, hear us from heaven and send fire upon (laughs) us in this place. We pray for an ignition, a lighting of fuses. Lord, some uh, are long, some are short, Lord. But we we pray, light something internally within us that will drive us once again to our knees with desperate cries and hunger pangs for you to move in our nation. Lord, we say the, the the nation around us is like a sick body, a corpse, Lord, that is hardly breathing, Lord, and we need you to revive us. We need you to take the heavenly defibrillator and apply it to the communities around us, to the nation that we live in, to to bring shock and awe to our nation in a fresh way. We pray for revival, Lord. We pray for a tearing open of the heavens. We thank you for little glimpses, little drops. We thank you for uh, steps forward and progress, that we're not where we were 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago, that there are plenty uh, uh, of signs of life and fruitfulness, but we say, God, there's a desperate, needy world out there that needs more than that. We pray that you'd come, that you'd break in. I pray that you'd light fires of intercession Whoa. in hearts today, Lord. A, 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 a birthing pang, Lord, that, that comes like a contraction from within us, Lord, that leads us to agonizing, uh, struggling. Uh, uh, laying hold of, of the God of history, the God who turns our history around. We pray, God, that you come and light that fire within ah. us. We pray that you put your hand on the tiller, that you take the rudder. We pray that you pull that rudder, Lord, of our nation around. We pray for a change of direction. We pray for intervention from above. We ask you, God, to revive us. Lord, we do say, surely it's about time. Lord, we look back to history and We find again and again, Lord, periods of decline, but then revival. And, Lord, we find it hard to look back even in our own nation, Lord, our own generation. Many of us have lived our whole lives without this. And we're getting older and grayer. We're getting nearer the end of our days than we were a year ago. And we say, God, in our day, in our generation, Lord, renew your work, revive your work, tear open the heavens. We've heard the reports, Lord. And we pray, God, give us a passion and a longing and a desire, Lord Jesus, that will uh, see us through seasons of prayer and intercession. We pray, put this back on the radar in a very clear way, Lord. We pray, Jesus' name, put it on the radar of our own hearts and the heart and radar of our own churches, that our prayer meetings, Lord, would reflect it, that our personal prayer would reflect it. Jesus, we pray, come and stir within us and create within us fresh desire, Lord, that we would be like that that old widow, that old widow that nagged and nagged and nagged and nagged and nagged, and nagged like that friend at midnight that knocked and knocked and knocked and knocked, that wasn't going away, empty-handed, uh, that, that was prepared to stay up at night and knock on the door. God, we pray, give us that persistent longing and take this... Ignition today, and feed yes. it, and stir it, and let it grow. We pray and spread, Lord, in Jesus' name. Lord. We ask you, Jesus, to do that. Amen. 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 <laughs> great. Well, God's ministering to you. I don't. I'm not aware of anything that needs to happen here. So you carry on under the the, the presence of God. Um, get hold of some of these great accounts and great great books that have written. And uh, yeah, may God bless you and uh, make this a contagious thing that we see spreading spreading within our churches